the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Europe and Regional Security Cooperation will now come to order. Um, I'm pleased to be joined by Ranking Member Senator Johnson. As we all know, supporting energy diversification in Europe is a key U.S. priority, and I hope that our discussion today is going to offer some ways in which Congress can best address this issue. I personally have been concerned that Russia's energy policy toward Europe was not just a simple transactional arrangement to provide oil and gas, but a tool that Putin could weaponize, and as we've seen, has weaponized to advance his foreign policy agenda. That has been a concern for a number of years in this committee. Um, that's why I worked on sanctions legislation on Nord Stream 2 to prevent its completion and to deny Putin its amb his ambition to further punish Ukraine for its pro-European aspirations. Russia's unprovoked illegal and unprovoked invasion, uh, further invasion of Ukraine earlier this year brought an end to Nord Stream 2, fortunately but it also shed light on the significant influence that Russia wields over Europe through its gas and oil exports. The transatlantic alliance is in agreement. Europe must work to end its dependence on Russian energy resources. I wanna congratulate our European allies for making critical but difficult decisions to accelerate their strategy to end their dependency on Russian energy sources. We must not forget the impact that these decisions have on households and businesses across Europe and here in the United States. In the U.S., we've seen gas prices skyrocket, leaving too many families struggling as they experience high fuel costs. The same trend is true in countries all across Europe. Lowering fuel costs, increasing energy efficiency, and diversifying how we heat our homes is critical for Americans and for our allies and partners. That's why it's so important that just last week, the European Union announced a sixth package of sanctions that would end their dependency on Russian oil. Furthermore, the European Union has accelerated its strategy to end its dependence on Russian gas by banning coal imports and establishing the EU Energy Purchase Platform, a voluntary coordination mechanism for the common purchase of gas, LNG, and hydrogen. This transition is important in the near term to stop petrodollars from flowing to Russia and funding the Kremlin's campaign to wipe Ukraine off the map. The effort is also important as part of our shared commitment to save our planet by investing in clean energy sources. At the COP26 summit in Glasgow, the United States and our allies made ambitious but critical commitments to emissions reductions that will keep the target of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees within reach. Speeding the transition to clean energy and ramping up energy efficiency feature prominently in Europe's proposed solutions to reducing their energy dependence on Russia. But of course, what is still unclear is how Russia's war on Ukraine has altered Europe's ability to uphold its commitments in meeting its targets. Yet, the process of detaching Europe from its reliance on Russian energy sources is complex and still politically fraught, as I'm sure we're going to hear this morning. Um, we have seen the challenges with Hungary's objections to the imposition of the ban on Russian oil. Ending Europe's reliance on Russian energy must be a thoughtful process, one that's fully implemented to ensure loopholes and backdoors are closed to Russian suppliers. I'm eager to hear from our administration witness this morning how these efforts to transition away from Russian oil and gas 
benefit both climate efforts and energy security. And I look forward to hearing the tools that the United States has to help countries in Eastern Europe, particularly those in the Western Balkans, reduce their dependence on Russian oil and how that can help thwart Putin's ability to divide European unity and prevent aspirant countries that want to join the European family. The State Department, USAID, the Department of, for Energy, and the Development the Finance Corporation are already playing a role in advancing these efforts, and I look forward to understanding how they fit into our broader strategy toward Europe. We must find ways to urgently support our allies and partners across the Atlantic and find creative and effective ways to supply energy while maintaining our focus on reducing fossil fuel dependence. I hope this hearing will help us do just that. With that, I turn to Ranking Member Johnson. Well, thanks, Senator Shaheen. And uh, I'll just ask for my oh, written opening statement to be entered in the record because it pretty well marries with an awful lot of things that you're saying there. Um, Coming from the private sector, the, the last thing you would ever allow your business to do when there are multiple suppliers was to become dependent on one. And you know, here in the world, we've got multiple suppliers of oil and gas and coal, and yet Europe has allowed itself to become basically 40 to 45% dependent on Russia, uh, knowing full well how they will use that geopolitical power uh, for their aims, for Russia's aims. And of course now we're, we're witnessing in Ukraine. Uh, just how dependent Europe is, is is pretty obvious. Now that we have this war in Ukraine, the, again, the unprovoked, uh, the, the atrocities, the war crimes being committed right now, and Europe can't do much about weaning themselves off the oil. And so they continue to fund, through oil purchases, continue to fund the war effort. So it, it's, it's a travesty, uh, all of us, Democrat, Republican, multiple administrations have been warning Europe about it. <clears throat> Hopefully, Europe will understand how vulnerable they have become and the ramifications of becoming this vulnerable in today's world. I'm not sure there's much we can do about it right now. Uh, I'll, I'll have some questions just in terms of uh, exactly to what extent they've been able to begin the weaning process. And I don't think it's much. We, we had a a secure briefing, and it didn't sound like much, didn't have the exact numbers, but maybe we'll get some more information here today. But uh, th this situation could have been avoided by long-term planning and just applying basic business principles. Again, you, as a business, you would never get yourself in this position when there are multiple suppliers for this kind of uh, uh, material. So anyway, uh, appreciate you holding this hearing. It's an important one, and look forward to the testimony. Thank you, Senator Johnson, and I know our witness today is going to shed light on all of those issues. He is U.S. Presidential Coordinator for Energy Security, Amos Hochstein. Um, Mr. Hochstein brings deep expertise in the energy sector. He's worked on U.S. energy policy at the State Department in several different roles, including leading the Department's Bureau of Energy Resources. He's also spent time on the Hill here in both chambers as Senior Policy Advisor to the Foreign Affairs Committee of the U.S. House and as an advisor to Senators Chris Dodd and Mark Warner. Mr. Hochstein also has experience in the industry. He's advised both domestic and international oil and gas companies. And his perspective on the energy sector from so many different angles, as well as his expertise on energy markets, informs his testimony today and makes him an excellent witness for this discussion. So we will submit your entire testimony 
for the record and ask if you could try and keep your opening remarks to the five minute um, window. So we very much appreciate your being here in person this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Is this yes, you should begin. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman and Ranking Member Johnson, members of the subcommittee. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss the administration's efforts to support energy, Europe's energy security. Putin's war of choice against Ukraine has affected global energy prices and underscored the imperative to diversify away from Russian energy dependence while accelerating the clean energy transition. The Biden administration supports Europe's efforts to achieve these goals and real energy security while depriving Putin of the economic revenues under, underwriting his war. This is not easy. Europe's dependence on Russian energy is significant and longstanding, and Europe will face difficult decisions in these efforts. The United States has long recognized the vulnerability that dependence on Russia poses to European energy security. The President, members of this committee, have focused on this issue for several years. In 2021, Russia provided around 45% of the EU's total natural gas imports and 27% of oil imports. And we can see that Russia is leveraging its fossil fuels as a weapon. The evidence for that is quite clear. Examples of Gazprom cutting off natural gas supplies are numerous, from Poland and Bulgaria to Finland, Netherlands, and Denmark. We've been working in lockstep with Europe to respond decisively. In the fall of 2021, we began working to divert LNG cargoes to Europe to avoid winter blackouts and shortages. In the first four months of 2022, the EU and UK imports of US LNG more than tripled compared to 2021. And on average, U.S. companies shipped 7.3 billion cubic feet, or BCM, uh, BCF, of LNG to Europe per day, accounting for 49% of LNG imports. The United States is now the largest supplier of natural gas to Europe, and Europe is taking steps to secure its energy supply. Finland reached an agreement with an American company, Accelerate, to get a floating storage and regasification unit in place by October that will allow Finland and Estonia to import additional LNG this winter. This builds on the previous decisions by individual countries to voluntarily reduce imports of Russian fossil fuels. Addressing the threat Russia poses to European energy security is not a simple task, as I said. Russia is one of the largest global producers and suppliers of fossil fuels. In 2021, Russian oil production reached 10.5 million barrels per day, making up 14% of the world's total supply, and exports to Europe total 2.4 million barrels per day. The administration has been working tirelessly to take actions that support energy, European energy security. With the International Energy Agency, we initiated two historic collective releases from Strategic Petroleum Reserve, including a U.S. contribution that put one million extra barrels of oil per day for six months on the market. We've supported cooperative initiatives with Europe to shift rapidly from Russian fossil fuels while accelerating the clean energy transition. On March 25 this year, President Biden and European Commission van der Leyen, President van der Leyen announced a joint task force to address European energy security. It has two goals, to diversify Europe's natural gas imports in the short term and reduce demand for fossil fuels in line with our shared climate and energy goals, clean energy goals. When Putin, Putin unilaterally violated his contracts and illegally cut off gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria, which went from a 95% dependence on Russia to zero literally overnight. We took swift collective action to support their efforts in identifying alternative LNG and pipeline gas supplies, and even that is not enough. While LNG diversification work has received a great deal of attention, 
our efforts with the EU on increased energy efficiency. And I, I know, Madam Chair, that you, you've done a lot of work on the efficiency side of this equation. And demand reduction have an equal, if not more important, role in Europe's long-term energy security. The most effective way to reduce demand for Russian fossil fuels is to reduce dependence on all fossil fuels. The President has been clear we need to advance these goals in parallel, diversifying away from Russia while acceler accelerating the clean energy transition. The U.S. and Europe are advancing energy demand reduction in the near term through facilitating smart technology deployment, increased energy efficiency, and renewable energy integration. We're working with the EU to engage key stakeholders to achieve that goal, and the EU plans to spend $56 billion on these efforts. We welcome EU and member states' efforts to accelerate that transition to reduce the dependence on fossil fuels. They're expediting approvals for renewable energy projects. Just for example, full permitting for a ground-mounted solar project in the EU takes four and a half years. A wind project takes almost nine years. Reducing these times will accelerate the clean energy transition and decrease Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels. The administration prioritizes strengthening Europe's energy security, and in these critical times, our cooperation has only strengthened. We're working alongside our European allies and partners to move away from Russian fossil fuels and towards a clean energy future and talk to them literally on a daily basis. Thank you, and I look forward to addressing your questions. Thank you very much for your testimony. So as you talk about um, the various ways in which we're trying to help Europe, what do we see as the biggest challenges? I assume that over the summer, um, things will remain relatively stable. But when we get into the fall, as we look at the ongoing war and um, the winter coming, what particular challenges are there and what more can we do to be helpful? Well, as you stated, this is really difficult. Um, and as Senator Johnson just said, Europe has put itself in a really precarious position, and we, the United States, are now in the position to help them get out of this precarious condition. We have, for the last, at least for the 10 years, 12 years that I've worked on uh, intensively on energy security in Europe, have been trying to get them to understand the danger of relying not just on one supplier, as Senator Johnson said, but on Russia as being that one supplier, when they have proven time again that they will use that for political purposes uh, and political leverage. So what we have done so far, trying to accelerate the uh, LNG from the United States, from Qatar, from Australia into Europe. Last winter, we identified the crisis before the Europeans did, before the war even started. We used our diplomatic efforts with purchasers around the world to see if they can accept less gas in their storage, still to secure their demand, but less in storage and divert those cargoes to Europe. That and a, the God effect of a mild winter uh, saved us from having actual shortages. But that's how close we got to depleting going to zero. Russia started this process long before the war. From May of last year, they started undersupplying Europe with gas to make sure that by the winter when they launched the war, the gas supplies would be low. So what we're trying to do is to see what can we, how can we work within the market forces to see if we can identify rerouting of gas to Europe on an urgent basis and reduce the demand itself. Uh, that is the hardest task. The first year is going to be very difficult. The summer is the most important period because we need to build up the stocks and the reserves for storage in Europe that are at a low level now 
Europe uses the summer to fill and the winter to use. So we have to get by November 1, we have to get to somewhere in the 85 to 95% of storage across Europe. That's a really tall ask. And we're working on that tirelessly. So can you talk a little bit more about what is going on with respect to the demand side and to energy efficiency? As we know, the that's the cheapest, fastest way to deal with our energy needs. Um, energy that isn't used, doesn't have to be produced. And uh, I know Ukraine, uh, and for all that I really admire what they're doing, um, from an energy perspective, they've been most, one of the most energy inefficient countries in Europe. So what's happening that can really focus more on that efficiency side in ways that help deal with the, the energy needs? So the issue in Europe is that gas is, doesn't compete really with renewables all that much because gas is used for heating and not for power in most countries. So we would need, in order to get the, move it to renewables, we would have to electrify the heating system. So that's a step in between. So we focus not just on moving to renewables, but rather using technologies that are used in a, sort of widely used in the United States, but not in Europe. We use smart thermostats in the United States far more than in Europe. They're, they're, they're very rare in Europe. And that alone uh, could save six to, six, BC, six to 10 BCM of gas demand just if we can get 10% of homes to use those kinds of technologies. Uh, heat pumps, if we can get more of those into the system, we can reduce that. As you said, take away the demand for the molecule itself. On, on oil, it's even harder because the supply is really constrained around the world. We're suffering from gasoline prices in the United States, um, and Russia is such a big supplier into Europe. Uh, but beyond just oil, it's about the refined products. So gasoline, diesel, um, we, as a result of the pandemic, lost a lot of those capabilities and capacity that is not coming back. So we have to be more efficient and we have to accelerate the efficiency levels and the alternatives to uh, oil and gas uh, in Europe as much as we can. But it's not just about the United States. It's about looking at what's happening in North Africa, the East Med, uh, more efficiency in Norway, and rerouting all these pipeline gas systems to support Europe while we work on the efficiency. Thank you. Senator Johnson. So I'm, I'm a numbers guy. And uh, kind of looking at my prep, prep material here, uh, we, we're going from, well, in your testimony, billion cubic feet, then billion cubic meters. It's just, it's just kind of, you know, I, I tried to make head and tails, and it's, it's pretty difficult. So but let's try here. Because uh, what, what I really want to get at is to what extent have the imports from Russia on you know, natural gas, oil, and coal, to what extent have we reduced those over the last 100 days of this war? I mean, how successful have we been? I mean, obviously, you know, we've increased shipments from LNG from the U.S. That looks pretty impressive in terms of 49% uh, of the region's total, but where, where do we sit on a macro basis? So, so what's happening, I think you're right. What's happening is less about how much oil is going off market or how much gas is being shut out of market from Russia and how much of it is being rearranged to some degree. So the reason that you're seeing so much gas coming into Europe from the United States and from Qatar is because the Russian gas is, not, is, is moving in other directions. So they've prioritized the Chinese pipeline. Uh, the LNG is still going. But they were beginning from such a low threshold 
that even if they continue to buy the Russian gas, which they are, they need more just to get to the starting point of the winter. On oil is where the rearrangement's happening. So you've seen a lot less oil going into Europe on a seaborne and going more towards India. So you've seen the Indian numbers uh, in the press. Uh, they've gone from less than 100,000 barrels a day on average Russian supply to close to 800,000. Uh, China's increased its purchases from, uh, from Russia. That means two things. One, the voyage is shorter, so Russia now has to sell it with shipping costs that are far greater. Uh, and because those countries know that there's constraint on Europe and the United States banning uh, or constraining the purchase, the discount uh, to the Russian oil is, is getting is wider and wider. So we're getting reports in the press you know, and from industry of significant discounts to Russian oil. So it's less about is the volume coming down and more about the revenues. We also know that some of the production- So, so what is your estimate in terms of the reduction in revenue then to Russia? So in other words, they're- probably selling the same amount of oil, gas. It's just going to different places, but because it's going to different places, they have increased transportation costs, and people are taking advantage of the situation and not paying as high prices as Europe was paying. So do you, have, do you have some kind of estimate in general? First of all, how, how much on an annual basis or monthly basis, what is the revenue estimate for Russian sale of uh, fossil fuels? I mean, do you have, uh, kind of have that basic number? I, I don't think I have that number in front of me. I have that number. I just don't have that specific number in front of me, and I can get that to you uh, after the hearing. Do, do, um, you, do you have some kind of sense then in terms of the percent reduction then, you know, based on the added transportation costs and the, the discounts that they're having to sell to these other places? So in, in most cases, they're, if you do the combination of both, they're looking at, in some cases, between $20 and $30 discount to, to Brent. So uh, with Brent, being very volatile, uh, I would have to calculate. Uh, but today we're at $120 Brent. About two, 10 days ago, we were at 110 And 10 days before that, we were at 105 um, So you have to look at the Urals, which is the Russian grade, trading at somewhere in that $20 to $30 uh, discount. What we are seeing, though, is which will only manifest itself a little bit later, is that their production levels are coming down, starting to come down. So they can export the same amount because their demand is down, because the economy in, in Russia is down, so demand is down, and they're putting less in storage. But that, that's gonna take some time to catch up where production levels are down. The production levels are down because Western companies have left. So maintenance, parts, equipment, expertise are gone. And as time goes by, that starts taking more and more of a hit. Somewhere in the five to 15% is the estimate on any field that was managed by either a US or a European uh, company. I'll try to do a better job and get some specific so, numbers. Can you, do you know what uh, the cost of Brent was a year ago or the start of this administration? So before, I would say last summer, we were in the 70s. Um, we ramped up as the ramped up to about $86 in November um, as um, COVID started easing. Then we got Omicron fears and prices went down again on the fear that we go to lockdown. But already then we had the estimates where we were going $100 because of a supply demand. Once the, once the troops started amassing on the border in, in December, January, uh, prices started really going up. And then we were stable in the 100 to 110. And only the last couple of weeks, we've gone to 120. So I guess my point to this quick analysis is that uh, the price increased more than the discount that they're recognizing right now because Correct. they're selling to other places. So Russia is actually in a better position revenue-wise, it appears, 
uh, at this stage in the war than they were at the start of the war. Uh, I can't deny that. That yeah. uh, no, I'm not. You know, it's, revenue. it's just unfortunate. It's uh, very. But it's, it's an important fact for us to, to realize that they are actually probably getting more revenue from their sale of fossil fuels globally at this point, 100 days plus into the war than they were at the start of the war. Then, then before the, I would say then a couple of months before the war started, because yeah. by the time the war starts, February 24th. was already ramping up. Okay, it was already ramping you. up. So it was okay. definitely before the war. But, but I will note, coming out of COVID, um, the demand increase that we're seeing around the world is far greater, stronger than anyone expected, especially since six months ago, we thought we were going to lockdowns and people were saying that we may be at $50 oil. Yeah. And then no, again, my, my whole point here is- But, you I, know, but I agree with your yeah, point. Yeah, my, my whole point is, is Russia in a better position or a worse position 100 days into this war vis-a-vis -vis the, the revenue they're getting off their fossil fuel and they're unfortunately in a, in a better position? You know, all, you know, regardless of all the sanctions, all the, all the pressure, all the substitution, that type of thing, they are getting more revenue today than they were, you know, certainly a few months before the war. I think if you look at it narrowly just on price they get per barrel sold, um, then I would agree with you on that. But I think the broader picture is that they have a harder time getting the money back into Russia. So some of the money sits in accounts uh, outside of Russia, so they can't utilize those revenues because of the restrictions on, on bank transfers, et cetera, and currency. Uh, they have a harder time spending that money and they cannot take care of their fields. So that's what I, my point before, their production starting to actually decline. So I, I would argue that narrowly on revenue per barrel, um, yes, but broadly, no, they're in, worse, they're in far worse shape and they will not be able to cover their natural declines and their aggressive declines. So, and they know that. They're trying to work every which way uh, in order to get parts and other things in order to prevent, because that's, that's calamitous for them over the next six months. So th these kind of questions I was asking in our secure briefing with the intelligence folks from State Department didn't have the answers. Uh, you've actually given me some pretty good information, which I appreciate. I still don't have the full story. So if you have that analysis, I think it's an important one for, for policymakers to understand exactly what's happening here. You know, to what extent Russia is really getting squeezed. And right now, it doesn't, just doesn't seem like they're getting squeezed that much. So but anyway. In a secure format, I can give you a little bit more than... Um, than what I've given you here on, on their picture, on the hit to their industry. But I think on that, it would be difficult for me to do that here. Okay. I appreciate that. Thanks. Thank you, Senator Johnson's Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Shaheen, for convening this important hearing. Uh, almost good to see you. You are um, uh, a truly uh, indispensable um, person in our fight to uh, try to make sure that Russia pays a price for their aggression and that we move Europe uh, forward on a path towards energy independence. I thank you for everything you're doing. Um, I'm not going to ask you a question about Saudi Arabia, but I know that you are deeply involved in the effort to try to um, um, unlock uh, additional resources from our Gulf partners. I will just say um, I have been incredibly unimpressed by the commitments that they have uh, made. I think there's great doubt as to whether it will actually move the needle on global pricing. And I also note that at the same time that they're increasing production, they're also increasing their official selling price for refiners um, in top destinations in Asia and Europe, signaling that they are still very much uh, looking to use this crisis as a means to increase their profit uh, taking. Um, and so I think we have a lot more work to do on that front. Um, I do want to stick to the topic at hand, though, uh, and talk about 
um, what capacities we have to try to help our friends in Europe. I um, note that we just passed $40 billion in assistance for Ukraine, and nowhere in that package was hard dollars to try to help our friends and allies in Europe become energy independent. Um, and that remains very strange to me that we spend billions of dollars on our Russia and Ukraine policy, and yet we don't seem to put real hard dollars into the projects that are necessary to break these countries free from Russian dependence. Senator Shaheen and I were in Serbia um, about a month ago, and they were talking about a, pro a, a small project to um, lessen their dependence on Russian gas in which their shortfall was $20 million. Um, and there wasn't a clean way for the United States to make that up. $20 million is a drop in the bucket when it comes to the amount of money that we are sending into the fight in Ukraine. You and I have had this discussion, but just for the record, um, shouldn't we as a as the legislative body be thinking about giving the administration additional tools with which to use on the European continent to try to uh, help some of these energy independence projects that sometimes have trouble getting funded through European or private channels? Senator, yes, I, I fully agree. I, I'm, not, I'm not in a position to tell the legislative branch what to, uh, what to do, but um, I think that we it is sometimes staggering how small the number is for what we, that would actually make an impact. Um, and as we look at, and I don't want to only focus on the gas side because you're right, when it comes to Bulgaria and, and Serbia, their total demand is three BCM a year. That's it. And we can see a government in Bulgaria that falls literally on the concerns for, uh, for the gas sales from, uh, from Gazprom on the cutoff, where really small numbers would have helped us to be able to do that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S. taxpayers should pay for gas in Bulgaria. That's not anyone suggesting that. But to give financing uh, for some facilities that could help them do that the way that we've done with Ukraine in 2014, to um, Romania, Czech Republic, and some others, Poland, uh, would like to expand their nuclear uh, power, uh, SMRs, uh, which we're supporting American technologies of SMR that can be deployed far faster for less money, um, but need support on the financing side. Those are things that we can do. Uh, get routing, uh, changing around some of the routes from Central Asia and other places around the East Med could benefit from our support as well. So there are things that we can do if we had the resources and the authorities to do that through the DFC and, and, and others. So listen, I think it's simply extraordinary what you and your team have been able to do. You mentioned Bulgaria. Um, behind the scenes, we have, I think, provided substantial help and assistance to uh, Bulgaria to um, try to manage this energy crisis. I, I, I just argue that there is more capacity and more tools we could give you. Senator Johnson and I have, you know, have written and passed legislation increasing DFC's capabilities, but we can do more. Um, can you just give a word? Um, my time is up, but can you just give a word on India? Um, obviously, we've seen this dramatic increase in exports to India. They're a critical partner. Um, what are the, what, what, what sort of the future look like of the Russia-India energy relationship? And um, what can we be doing together to try to talk to our friends uh, in India about the, the consequences of continuing to ramp up their, their dependence? 
So obviously the relationship with India is really critical from energy strategically in the region for a variety of reasons, um, and energy is just one of them. Um, in my conversations with them, I've said, look, I understand, I can't, I, we don't have secondary sanctions, I can't ban your purchases, but as you increase your purchases from Russia, I would ask two things. One, uh, don't, don't go too far um, and don't look like you're taking advantage of the pain that is being felt in European households and in the United States. Second, um, make sure you negotiate well, because if you don't buy it, nobody else is. So you have an advantage here. Um, it's a very difficult conversation because yeah. the Indian economy is so dependent on these imports and their, their inflation is, is worse than ours. And, and the impact as such a big importer compared to U.S. being a producer, it hits them a lot harder than it hits us. So it's a balance. Uh, I, I think there is a ceiling to what they will take and how much they will increase further, but we'll have to see as we go. And, and listen, I, I think it's a, a policy question for this committee and for this Congress as to you know, whether this has an effect on our, um, on our growing enthusiasm for the U.S.-India relationship and our willingness to you know, look the other way as they have um, more deeply integrated themselves with both Russian energy sources and Russian military equipment. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Um, I want to pick up. Senator Murphy talked about Serbia and what's happening there. As he said, we were there the end of April, and um, obviously that's Serbia and the Western Balkans are one of the places where um, Russia still has um, a fair amount of influence and has the potential to disrupt um, stability and make things more difficult, and energy is one of those areas that helps them do that. Having said that, I noted with great interest that President Vucic um, entered into a very favorable gas agreement with Putin, and I wondered if we have any sense of whether this um, deal was done as part of um, relations with Serbia and Russia rewarming, or is it the result of Russia seeing their usual customer there and being able to continue to sell them the gas that they need? So do you have any sense of what the, the geopolitics around that are? I think Russia will offer a discount right now to anybody who will agree to pay, uh, and anybody who will agree to sign a contract, they will get a discount. Um, gas has traditionally not been about revenues. It's been about politics. Oil has been about revenues in the Russian system. It's not that they don't want to make money, but that has been sort of the, the division of labor between those two. Uh, I'm not sure that the agreement with Vucic is, or with Serbia is has entered into force yet. Uh, it's for a 10-year extension. I think they got a six-month extension that has now expired. Um, I've talked to him um, around the same time of your visit on the phone a couple of times. Uh, he knows what our expectations are, and that if he wants to continue on his accession to, to the EU, which we, which we support him taking the steps necessary for that, uh, but we also think that his uh, alliance with the West and with Europe needs to be uh, being cautious of putting his entire basket, even though it's just 3BCM, into the Russian basket. However, we're going to have the Bulgaria-Serbia interconnector uh, complete soon. We're going to have the interconnector Greece-Bulgaria complete by September will be operational, something we've been working on for years. Uh, there's going to be a new LNG terminal 
in Albania and in Greece. Uh, so there will, right now he has no other options. There, there's literally no other interconnect except for Gazprom. So my hope is that as we go forward, we're, gonna, we're, we're showing him that there are alternatives. So please don't get into a 10-year agreement when within the next few months, I may have some other options for you. Um, well, we also heard from President Vucic that he was very interested in ending Russia's majority um, role in the oil company NIS. And um, would that, if he is successfully able to do that, will that have any impact on um, Russia's oil supplies or the energy relationship between the two countries? I think that would be a really good step to take towards more independence. Uh, I'm aware of the uh, statements he made to you on his efforts uh, and to others. Um, I haven't seen yet uh, the action taken, but I think he is under discussions with the EU, uh, with the Council and the Commission uh, for the tools to be able to do that legally. Um, we'll have to continue to follow up, and I, I can follow up with you on those conversations separately. That would be great. Can, can you also go into a little more detail on what what we can do that's helpful in terms of the Western Balkans and energy issues? We're working on legislation right now to to try and address some of some of the concerns in that region. And obviously, energy is one of those big issues. Are there specific aspects of um, energy that we ought to be looking at in legislation, or? Do we think that that's important as we're looking at legislation for the region? Well, first, I think Western Balkans are important because I think what we're seeing today is years of us not paying enough attention right. to the Western Balkans and allowing the situation to continue. We have to be able to marry, I believe, we have to be able to marry our political agenda, our policy goals with, an econo with economics. And if we ignore the economic side, we will not achieve the political ends because we can't ask people to continuously make very large economic sacrifices um, for our political, for political goals with no benefit on the economic side on the other end of it. So that's why we worked on the Kirk, uh, if you take it as a whole, the Kirk LNG terminal is now as operational in Croatia that most people when I came up to brief here many years ago told me would never happen, a LNG terminal in Greece. We're trying to see if there could be a possibility for a LNG um, FSRU, so a um, a uh, floating LNG terminal in Albania, uh, re do some of the connections between Bulgaria and Serbia and between Greece and Bulgaria, ultimately to Serbia. If we can do all those things and I can work in Central Asia to increase the supply from Azerbaijan by interconnecting and working more closely with Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan uh, and with the agreement from Turkey, you're looking at really substantial change of the map if the infrastructure exists. But as we stand today, I don't even have the infrastructure to deliver uh, energy supplies into the Western Balkans and to compete. The Turk Stream 2 pipeline, everybody talks about Nord Stream, but Turk Stream 2 is as damaging as Nord Stream was, and we fought against it really hard. Unfortunately, um, that got built. Um, but we have, to, we have to counter it with actual physical volumes that have the infrastructure to get across the entire region. And what I've just described is a huge step forward, but not enough. Thank you. Senator Johnson? That'd be great. Senator Van Hollen. Thank you, Senator Johnson. And uh, Senator Shaheen, thank you for calling this hearing. Uh, Mr. Hochstein, thank you for all your great work on this front. Um, I really want to 
pick up on a point that Senator Johnson made earlier and Senator Murphy with respect to those countries that are taking advantage of the situation in Ukraine. You've worked very hard. The administration's worked hard to get our European partners to put together a plan uh, to reduce and phase out reliance on, on Russian oil. And that comes with a price of higher energy prices, uh, which their people are um, willing to tolerate because of the cause. But you have other countries that are increasing uh, their imports of Russian oil at discounted prices, essentially, in my view, war profiteering. Can you talk about uh, the administration's plan? I heard in response to Senator Murphy in India, you said, well, you know, our, our, we're saying to them, just don't go too far. That doesn't seem to me to be a clear enough line here. Um, we are exploring the idea of secondary sanctions here. Um, and I want to know what your view is on this question and how, how Europeans would respond if we uh, collectively worked on secondary sanctions to prevent countries, it's not just India, uh, from essentially exploiting the situation to their benefit uh, while other countries' populations are, you know, having to deal with the wartime sacrifice. Well, Senator, I think the most important part of the policy, the really critical for us to succeed in this, is to focus on the goal of reducing revenues for for Russia, while uh, mitigating the negative impacts on the allies uh, at the same time. And that's that's the hardest part of this, is how do you strike that balance uh, to reduce the revenues and focus on reducing the revenues for Russia. So I don't necessarily look at it always as how many barrels have come off the market versus how much money is he making on it and how can I reduce that uh, in a way that um, mitigates what we're seeing here at home. I mean, look at the prices of oil, of Brent crude, WTI crude here at home, and, and of course in Europe suffering from massive increases in gas, which is are today almost triple the price in the United States. So I know I'm being a little bit vague on India, and I'm happy to have a, a, a separate conversation on the exact nature of that conversation of what I think is uh, too much um, and how much discounts we can push into the system. But I can tell you that we are working with Europe very closely, and they've just passed a six-package of sanctions that includes uh, some sanctions on insurance and, uh, and on, on supplies. And we'd like to see how we can use those sanctions to affect the broader market uh, beyond the U.S. and Europe so that it achieves the goal that you're saying so that nobody's profiteering uh, from the suffering. Right. No, I, I appreciate that. But we, we have to recognize that the reason that certain countries are getting Russian oil at a discount is because they're not able to sell that oil into places like, like Europe because of Europe's efforts. So it just seems to me that um, we need to be thinking about taking stronger action. And I'm not talking about any one country in particular. I'm talking about any country yep. uh, where they're uh, dramatically increasing their purchase of, of Russian oil. I understand the, the, the volume price uh, issue, but again, the, the fact that Russians are getting less for their oil from those countries is a direct result of the fact that other countries are paying more. Um, if I could turn quickly to uh, the situation in Lebanon, which as you well know, and we've had conversations in the past about this, um, is in a huge, continues to be a huge economic uh, problem. Um, 
a while back, uh, Hezbollah worked to exploit uh, the energy shortage situation by trying to bring in Iranian oil from other places. And our ambassador to Lebanon and you and others uh, came up with a more innovative approach uh, to try to uh, transfer Egyptian gas and Jordanian electricity in Lebanon in a way that still would not benefit the Assad regime. Can you, can you provide an update on where we are? This process has taken a lot slower than some of us hoped. It sure has been a lot slower than some of us hope, and I'm, I'm, I'm one of those. We have given them a, some comfort, some pre-clearance uh, to, based on the information we had, to move ahead on the sanctions. But I want to be clear that that will be determined when the contracts are signed. Um, Lebanon has been negotiating with Egypt. I believe those negotiations are now complete. Uh, the negotiations with Jordan are complete. Uh, the arrangement of the barter agreement with uh, Syria, I believe, is near completion. They'll be meeting this week. My hope is that over the next 10 days, two weeks or so, um, they'll see if they can reach an agreement. What makes it so difficult is that in order to stay um, out of the uh, benefiting Assad, uh, this makes it very, very difficult. Uh, and that's why it's taken such a long time. Uh, I will, I'm in direct consistent touch with, with all parties. I'm hoping that we can get it there because a total collapse of Lebanon is not in the interest of any of the countries in the region or the United States. Uh, I believe that uh, that, is, that is a unanimous view in the region that we have to do that. Today, Lebanon only has about four to five hours of electricity per day. Uh, so if we don't step into that breach, someone else will, and someone else has plans to, as you mentioned already. Uh, so we need to work ef efficiently. We also have some other instability in, in Lebanon today between, as we've seen in the press, between Lebanon, uh, statements that they've made about a ship arriving in Israel. Uh, and we hope that that doesn't escalate uh, further. We've asked for everyone to uh, just maintain and um, the discussions. And we are hoping that we can resume our negotiations and mediation between Israel and Lebanon very, very quickly in order to calm things down from escalating further as they did rhetorically over the last uh, few days. Well, thank you for your efforts to push this forward. And Senator Johnson, thank you again. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Senator Johnson. You're more than welcome. Uh, more numbers. Uh, does the administration have any estimate in terms of what uh, the war in Ukraine is costing the West on a monthly basis or any basis? I, I don't have that number. Uh, I assume that that number exists somewhere um, between our support and the economic um, the economic destruction uh, in energy market, food markets, and inflation. Uh, but I would have to I would have to have those who have that uh, get back to you. Okay. That, that'd be a useful piece of information. Um, obviously, the human toll is incalculable. Do you have any estimation in terms of the, just the the just, you know not economic but infrastructure? I mean, just the the damage done to Ukraine. What what's going to cost to rebuild? Oh, I, again, I would have to get back to you on, on that number, but it is, uh, you've seen the images that we've all seen. You've had the secure briefings on, on the damage to the infrastructure. It's, it's immense. It's, um, it's hundreds of billions. I'm, I'm hoping we don't start more. using the T word, but yeah, I I mean, that's basically what we're talking about, right? Uh, yes. For sure. So the, the reason I bring it up is, and the reason I had my earlier round of questions is just kind of lay out, here's the reality situation. You know, as much as we'd like to put the squeeze on Russia, it's very difficult to do so. 
people need oil, people need gas, people need uh, energy. And so it's just, a, it's just a shell game. You're just substituting it and yeah, their revenue declines, but that's what's gonna happen. So from my standpoint, I'm kind of looking ahead, hoping at some point in time this war ends, then our attention is gonna be turning to rebuilding Ukraine. And it's gonna cost hundreds of billions of dollars. Where are you gonna get that money? From my standpoint, the best place to get that money is some kind of royalty off of Russian oil sales. And again, I'm not saying this is gonna be easy to implement, but we're already seeing, you know, Europe's willing to pay 120 a barrel while somebody else is paying 70. And, you know, gas prices, they, you know, oil prices go up and down all the time. So uh, is the administration kind of looking ahead that way? And do you have any imaginative ideas in terms of how you can fund the rebuilding of Ukraine, potentially by using Russian oil and gas? We are taking a look on a variety of options that go along the lines of some of the things that you've just said, uh, of looking how we can think of both of those issues of the revenues to Putin, but also uh, looking at the day ahead of what happens and how do we generate uh, revenues that could be used for reconstruction. Um, I think they're not mature yet for a discussion here. Uh, we're also having that conversation with our European allies at the Commission and the member states uh, and with some of the G7 allies around the world. Uh, to identify to address that, but I think that the comments you've made are are spot on and uh, things that we're we're really looking at uh, trying to come up with the creative solutions to make sure that it works not just on paper but in the real in the reality of the markets that it's enforceable and works. Okay, well, I'm glad you're thinking about. It. I wouldn't expect you to have a plan. I mean, it's going to be it'd be incredibly difficult to negotiate something. But as long as you, I mean, I can't think of a better source of revenue for that kind of rebuilding. Uh, in our full committee hearing on, on Ukraine, I, I was really asking about the, the food, the grain situation. Um, didn't sound like there are too many answers. I haven't seen too many answers. I've seen some calls in the press for uh, military artilla, or flotilla, I mean, um, to you know, bring the, the grain out to, through the ports. Uh, you know, there's rail, that type of thing. What, what is the current status? Because uh, you know, we, we, we don't have months and months. We've got days and weeks uh, before you're really facing severe food shortages around the world. So we have a significant team that's working on together with Ukraine and with uh, the EU and specifically the European countries right there to see how much we can get out as fast as possible. Obviously, Putin allowing uh, ships to uh, lift the you know, blockade and allowing ships to leave uh, the port would that would and not starve the rest of the world and, and cause so much damage. Uh, to uh, to the global food supply would be the easiest ways to do it. But we're trying to see how much grain we can get out and at what pace and at how fast we can do it. I think that's a top-of-mind effort. But I'll say on the food security, the, the food energy nexus uh, is quite significant. And I'll tell you, just yesterday, uh, one of the UK companies shut down a fertilizer plant because of the high cost of natural gas. So we saw a number of plants shut down in September and again November, which is why I, I was able to see that we're gonna we were warning in the press in September and October that there'll be a there could be a food crisis uh, if natural gas prices don't come because of that nexus. So we have these two issues. One is uh, the supplier that is Ukraine and Russia being such a large supplier to the world, and the second fertilizer plants and other things that and the diesel required for planting season. 
uh, all of these are, are very closely linked between energy prices and the food prices. So I take from your answer, the administration is really looking at alternate modes of transportation than the normal one, which would be using the sea. Uh, any quick estimates in terms of what percentage of the grain you can get out of the, the silos right now so they have a place to store the winter wheat when they harvest it? Again, I'll, I'll talk to the team that's doing uh, that, and I think they do have an estimate for that, so I'll, I'll, be able, I'll make sure that you get that. And I, I'm assuming it's also safe to say there's really no serious discussions about uh, having a military escort for bunch of merchant ships and forcing our way in there? I, I will leave that discussion to a different uh, to a different venue and people uh, to discuss that. Okay. Well, appreciate your testimony. And let me just add, I, I was just to answer your question from before, the estimate, the IEA's estimate, is that Russia earned about $20 billion a month um, uh, this past year uh, on oil and gas revenues. Um, I think um, I only have a couple more questions. I don't know if Senator Johnson does, so um, we will finish up very quickly. But I did want to ask about grid interconnectedness, and because one of the things I was very pleased to see was that Ukraine was able to disconnect from Russia's energy grid and get into Europe's. And I think it was at the Helsinki Commission hearing this week that one of the people testifying suggested that one of the things that would be really helpful would be to have France, if France were to allow um, the grid interconnection to Eastern Europe so that the LNG from Spain could actually reach um, through, and I know the Midcat Step Pipeline project also is in there, so it would take a number of steps, but, but how likely is that? What are negotiations underway to address that, and what's the progress, and do we think that France is um, interested in allowing that energy to pass through to Eastern Europe? So two, two very important issues. So in the days leading up to the invasion, literally, I think February 20th, uh, we were finally able, and the, the administration pushing very hard on uh, everyone involved to allow for the grid of um, Ukrainergo, which is the Ukrainian grid, to connect to Europe. Uh, this is something that we, I, mean, I tried to work on in 2015 and 2016. Europe was very resistant uh, to it at the time, competition and so on. But they gave Ukraine a roadmap and they fit, fulfilled every single step. And I have to say, Ukrainergo was run uh, as a clean, transparent, and very effective company and was able to fulfill that. So we did a disc, we, we orchestrated a disconnection from, Serbia, from uh, Belarus and Russia in the days leading up to the uh, invasion under the risk that Russia would not reconnect right after. The, that went very successfully. And following that, the NSOE, which is the association in, in uh, Europe of the TSOs of the, tra the transmission system operators, allowed it to uh, connect. So today, Ukraine is connected to the EU and not connected to Russia and Belarus, which was a key strategic uh, imperative. Two, I think that we're actually at a point where we're going to be able to sell electricity from Ukraine into Europe this year. That will create both cash flow, to Senator Johnson's point about creating some cash flow in Ukraine, that, that will be able to, and we can expand that quite significantly, and these are not small amounts of money, uh, for Ukraine. Now, sadly, Ukraine has the capacity to sell because, because of the war. Their demand for electricity in Ukraine is, uh, has been, is so low um, under these circumstances. As far as France and Spain, 
look, this is an issue that we've been talking about for literally over a decade um, of seeing if there can be a more mature connection between Spain and France. Spain has enormous amount of LNG capacity that is completely unused uh, because they can't transit the gas to France and then the grid can't connect from there. I'm truly hopeful that the lessons are learned and that that could finally be resolved. Uh, that hasn't happened yet, but I'm, I'm truly hopeful that that can be addressed. So are there ways that Congress could be helpful on that? Well, at the end of the day, these are decisions that France and Spain have to make about physical right. interconnection between the two. Uh, they have the money to do it, so it's not a, a financial issue. Um, I think both countries know the issue quite well. I think there are political forces at play. Uh, but I hope and I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we can uh, see the end of that dispute and get uh, interconnection done quickly. But again, it's up to uh, those two countries. Sure, but pointing out the folly of what's happening right now, I think, is important. And as and Chairman, we look I, at I'm sure that you and your and senators on this committee and others will, will know how to do that better than I can advise you. Thank you. Um, any, anything else you want to I, I would ask if, on behalf of Senator Risch, he'd like a fact sheet from the Count on Coal organization be entered in the record. And I have a letter from uh, the Embassy of Poland, as well as one from the Center for European Policy Analysis uh, to be entered, ask consent to enter those in the record. Um, yes, and in fact, we would like to extend the opportunity for um, folks to enter items into the record for until Monday, um, because we have reached out to a number of our European allies and asked if they would like to submit testimony. And so we do have some of that testimony coming in. So without objection, we will certainly do that. And Senator Portman made it in just under the wire. So I will call on you if you're ready. Well, thank you. First, uh, thanks to the witness and to uh, Chairman Shaheen and Ranking Member Johnson uh, for holding this hearing. It's really an important topic. We're now in the 106th day of the war against Ukraine. I just met with a bunch of Ohioans who are Ukrainian-Americans uh, who are very frustrated uh, by what they see uh, in Ukraine with the Russians have superior weapons and then with our sanctions against Russia, the global sanctions not being as effective as they should be. Um, you know, I... I have focused a lot on this issue of energy because that's where most of the money is coming from to fund the war machine. Uh, $870 million a day, roughly, coming from Europe alone uh, to the coffers. Uh, and with big profit margins, you know, that enables Putin to continue to fight this, 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 this war without the kinds of consequences that I would hope we could put in place. So good that the European Union is beginning to uh, over a six to eight month period, wean themselves away from uh, Russian oil, but uh, too little too late. And uh, so that's, that's my big concern, is that we're, we're not doing what we need to do to be able to actually have the, uh, the Putin regime feel the pain. 10 to 12% reduction in their economy, 40 to 50% reduction in the Ukrainian economy, as an example, over the past 106 days. So, Mr. Hochstein, I understand you are currently serving as a senior member of the U.S. European Union Task Force on Energy Security. And uh, again, I have said positive things about that, but also said they need, need to move more, more quickly. Um, can you please provide us just a, a, a brief update? Maybe you already have. Um, and specifically, what is in this work plan? We, we haven't seen publicly you know, what is actually in the work plan. Um, and I would love if you could provide me with the 
um, you know, updates of the progress of this task force as we go forward. But I wonder if you could give us a report. Uh, maybe you already have today and I missed it, but specifically on what the work plan is. Sure, Senator. And um, so the task force, we have a mechanism called the US-EU Energy Council, which addresses sort of long-term relationship between the United States and the EU. So the task force was created to not to disrupt that work as a, the long-term, but rather to address things that are the immediate concern uh, I co-chair the task force with President uh, the EU Commission President van der Leyen's Chief of Staff, um, and Bjorn Siebert. We are looking at two parallel things that we want to achieve through this task force. One is to increase the amount of gas flowing into Europe on an immediate basis. We've committed to try to, from the U.S., to try to increase that by 15 BCM this year. That's not just LNG from the U.S., but the U.S. using our diplomatic efforts and creative thinking to... Uh, provide that gas through pipeline and LNG from around the world. Uh, I think we're making significant progress towards that, towards that goal. Uh, second, uh, we want to be in a, in a place where we can increase the supplies of LNG to Europe by 50 BCM, 5-0, um, by the end of the decade. To do that, though, Europe has to take its own steps. It has to build the infrastructure, which it had not done, and it has to sign contracts that are be willing to sign long-term contracts uh, you're seeing the work being done in Germany. They have announced the creation of two new LNG terminals. They're going to have three or four uh, floating LNG terminal for the interim. That should start operating. A couple of those start operating by the end of this year. So that's some of the commitments that the task force uh, started so working could I, on. I interrupt you there because I've heard sure. so many different uh, estimates as to how long it's going to take to get these import terminals, in yeah. effect, uh, in, in position. You're saying it could happen in the next six to eight months? So there's different kinds of terminals. So there's the onshore full-time terminal that yep. takes years to do, that yep. takes five years to build. Yep. Uh, but in the interim, if you can get a ship that comes in, docks uh, in your port, you have an interconnection that you build a short pipeline, that can be done within a matter of, uh, you know, under a year. And so we're going to see a couple of those in, um, a couple of those in Germany. Uh, Accelerate, an American company, just signed a contract with Finland. It's going to have one hopefully in October. Uh, connected to Estonia and then moved to Finland to address the Finland-Estonia um, Baltic um, markets. Uh, so these are the kinds of things that we're going to try to do. Uh, we worked with the Norwegians, and uh, there's an increase. There's already an announced increase of 5 BCM from a, uh, a field in uh, an LNG terminal and field in Norway that's coming on that is coming online now. It's it's in its final stages. That will do about 5 BCM. Working in North Africa in the East Med. Uh, Israel, Israeli gas through Egypt and Jordan mm -hmm. to get to uh, to Europe as well. So those are the kinds of things on gas. But second, as we t I talked about a little bit earlier, we also have to reduce the demand uh, for gas using far better technology, uh, efficiency standards. There are things that we can do on an immediate basis, some with American companies, some Asian companies that have the technology to do that. Europe buys 140 BCM of pipeline gas from, from Russia. That is not something that is easy to replace uh, under the current uh, market. Are, are, are we going to meet our goal of, of adding 15 um, to that this year? I believe so. And I see that between January and April, we increased about 18% of our LNG exports, 74% of which is going to Europe. Is there enough infrastructure to be able to absorb what we are, what we are sending, these increased amounts? So for now, yes, but if you look at every available terminal today, the capacity is full. 
Yeah. But that's why we're working with them on how do you address uh, the capacity. Uh, th- and there may be another LNG terminal that we can get in place by the end of the year in Albania. So we're tr- I'm trying to see what we can do with the available infrastructure, yeah. the increase of immediate infrastructure, as well as long-term infrastructure, and then make sure that the gas is available to supply it. Well, it sounds like we're not going to have enough gas to replace, as you say, this incredible dependency that they unfortunately developed with, with Russia. So thinking outside the box, and then I'll, I'll end my questioning. Thank you guys for your indulgence. Um, what else? I mean, we, we, you mentioned energy efficiency. That's fine. They're more efficient than we are already. Um, but I'm sure there are technologies to help on that. Um, one thing that you know, some of these countries are still using nuclear power, France in particular, Romania. I was just in Romania last week. They're going from 20 to 40 percent nuclear. Um, they want help from us, by the way. Please help us with XM Bank to provide them the loan they need to make that happen. They're kind of frustrated with us uh, since they left the Chinese company and decided to go with us. We need to help them more. But what else can we do? Hydrogen technology. I mean, is there something else we can do to sort of leapfrog this? Otherwise, it seems to me we're going to be playing a game of catch up. I agree completely. So first, I think they're not necessarily more efficient than we are. I I think we are more efficient. Um, I'm talking about residential and commercial energy efficiency standards. Well, the standards are there, but because they don't use things like uh, smart thermostats because they don't okay, have Okay, good. Um, uh, that's good. So there's, there's an opportunity to do more. So we're working with the American private sector and others to see how we can surge and, and make the adjustments to these technologies so that they fit the European uh, yeah. models. On, on, I want to touch on Romania because I think this is critically important. Um, they did, we, we supported their effort on SMR, on mm-hmm. um, modular reactors. Uh, they're right to be frustrated with us. I'm in touch with them directly. I think that is a key thing for us to support is advanced nuclear and not regu- not, not just um, traditional, but as we go into SMR, uh, I think Czech Republic, Romania, Poland, seeing how much we can do to be helpful there, they need the support financially uh, from us, not just from Exim Bank, but their feed studies need to be done that we should be uh, helping finance uh, through uh, existing DFC, DFC. TDA, et cetera. Uh, that's something that I think will be a step change in dependency because electrifying the entire heating system is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, so we have to get that step of electrifying and then supplying the electricity. Yeah, well, thank you for being an advocate for uh, moving ahead aggressively there since they have, again, made a decision to go with us rather than China. Um, we we got to step up, and that will be a model, as you say, a template for the region. They also built a cell energy uh, to yep. places like Moldova, who are desperate for it and don't want to be so dependent on, on Russia uh, and trans, the Transnistria plant. So thank you very much for your advocacy of that. Let us know if we can do things to be helpful. Thank you, Senator Portman. Um, again, I want to thank Ranking Member Johnson um, for sitting on this hearing with me. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Hochstein, for your excellent testimony this morning. Obviously, there's more work we have to do, and this subcommittee stands ready to help in any way that we can. Um, We will leave the record open until 5 p.m., close of business on Monday, June 13th, for additional testimony. And with that, this hearing will close.